Welcome to On The Brink, a fresh lens to take you and your business to new heights. I'm Andy Simon. As you know, I'm your host and your guide. And my job is to help you see, feel, and think in new ways so you can get off the brink. What do I do? I go looking for interesting people to share with you their ideas. So I have Klaus Rastad here with us today. And Klaus is an innovation guru. I'm going to read you his bio. I met him at Peter Winnick's Lunch Group for Innovative Thinkers and Thought Leaders. He's doing some cool stuff, but he's an innovation strategist. And as we talked about, uh, and people like to think they're innovative, but don't quite know how to do it, and they don't even get it done. So it's always so interesting to watch ideas never turn out anything other than a good idea. He's the director for the College of Extraordinary Experiences, and he's going to tell you about it. And he's a coach at McKinsey. Every day he releases a daily innovation keynote on his YouTube channel. I think that's a very cool, cool idea. You should listen in. And he's the author of 30 books. The last one's called The Innovation Cycle, or the newest one's called The Innovation Cycle. <laughs> and he has a past in reality TV. And he and I were both talking about how everything is reality TV today. <laughs> Maybe there's no difference between the real and the illusion. Klaus, thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me on. Well, it's a pleasure. Tell the listeners about who you are and your own journey, because out of that comes some really interesting opportunities for them to understand how you became the innovator you are and how they might be able to as well. Please, who's Klaus? I think the simple answer to that question is that Klaus spent most of his adult life as an entrepreneur and as a pioneer in the live action role play space. And if you don't know what that is, then you're just like most of the rest of the planet. <laughs> and one of the reasons that why I ended up in innovation is that I built what became the world's largest live action role play company. And I spent 15 years of my life on that. And then I watched it crash flaming to the ground, leaving me with a little over a million dollars in personal debt. Oh. And being in a space that doesn't really exist, well, then you have to innovate. And also uh, being uh, being crazily in debt when that crashes, then you also have to innovate because now you have a very burning platform. So whether I wanted to or not, most of my adult work life has been spent in innovation. Well, that is very incredible. I don't know what the living workspace uh, platform was, but I am interested in how you uh, found opportunities coming out of it to create new value innovatively, not incrementally. It doesn't sound like you're borrowing an idea and adding a little juice to it. You're changing the whole model. So talk to us a little bit. How do you do that? So I can answer that uh, ironically by talking a little bit about the College of Extraordinary Experiences, which, as you mentioned, I'm the director of and one of the co-founders of, because my good friend Paul Bulincha and I, we were on the, home, on the way home to Europe after a project scouting in Abu Dhabi in the Middle East. And as you do when you're on planes home from Abu Dhabi, you say, what do we do to change the world today? And then we started talking about tourist conferences. And Paul said, tourist conferences are all good food, good to excellent speakers, but they're all the same. They're, they're boring, most of them. And while there's new stuff, it's not that new. And we thought, okay, why, why is that? Why, why is it that there's not new? Because tourism, you'd think that'd be like an exciting frontier for new development. And one of the things we, we kind of came across, and it's not exactly new, but is curation, that if you want people to have incremental innovation, as you say, then put them together with their peers. 50 filmmakers, 50 bricklayers, 50 doctors, doesn't matter. Put people together in a good environment and they will share ideas. And you'll have incremental innovation. But if you want radical innovation, then you need to put them together with people who are different. 
Put a homeless guy next to a banking CEO. Put somebody who runs a circus next to an airline executive. Put a couple of drunken students next to the headmaster at their school. Then you have a chance, not a guarantee, but you have a chance at radical innovation. But what happens normally if you curate those kinds of, of audiences, and that's rare enough in itself, people will look at each other and they'll say, you're too weird. You're too young, too old, too French, too corporate, too artsy, too different. And they won't be open. And that's why radical innovation is so rare, because we get it from people who are unlike us, but we're not good at trusting people or even meeting them if they're not like us. No, um, you remind me of the Santa Fe Institute, which tries to do the same thing. Bingo. People who study ants can talk to people who study medicine to see, you know, what's going on there. You know, so I'll share with the listener and the viewers some of our own understanding about why change is so painful, because we're anthropologists who specialize in helping organizations change. And they hire me and they lock me in a closet and hope I don't come out, because just saying I have to change is scary enough. But the brain hates change. It likes the familiar. The brain creates a story in it, and you live that story, and you only see the things that conform to it. And it's a very efficient brain. The habits take over. And you believe your habits are truth. The only truth is there's no truth. And so if you can only see what conforms to it, to your point, you bring people who are like-minded together and they all look at each other and say, I'm good and they're good. But you bring them different and you have no way of really combining their ideas into a new fashion. Now, we know the more ideas you have, the more likely you will have big ones and they come at the intersections. So now that you started this College of the Extraordinary, you know, are you bringing people together, curating them? Do you see things coming out of it? I'd love to hear what you're actually doing. Oh, oh yes. So the College of Extraordinary Experiences is, apart from being a company that does all sorts of weird stuff, is an, a yearly conference where we bring together people from all over. People from different industries, different cultures, different backgrounds. I think last time before Corona, we had 31 different nations, Wow, uh, something like that. And then we create an environment. It doesn't hurt that it's in a 13th century medieval castle in Poland it, to create a special environment. But we create a place where people get to meet as humans. And that means when they finally sit down and have that so what do you do? What do you like? What are you struggling with? Conversation, whether it's in a hallway at 4 a.m. in the morning or in the secret dungeon bar or at a workshop, then they have open hearts and open minds. And then somebody suddenly, somebody will say, well, I work with, with fitting uh, garments at Victoria's Secret, and here's what we do. And the other person will say, oh, well, I run a theater. Here's what we do. And there'll be an exchange instead of saying, we'll never meet. And if we meet, we'll never talk. And if we talk, we'll never listen. So that's that's part of it, is this bringing people together with different viewpoints. And one of the reasons that I personally get to do a lot of innovation work is that I've got a little bit of a different background than most people in, in big corporate organizations. And I come from a place where you're constantly taking on new roles, constantly shifting realities and changing stories. And it turns out, oddly enough, that's really, really good training for innovation work in big organizations. Well, you know... Uh, the other part that you're trying to counter is our desire to be part of a herd or a tribe or a club. And that human being has, has evolved successfully or not because we're club members. We like to tribe it. Um, and we get our confidence from the same stories, the same language. So do people, when they come to your events or however you bring them together, they must walk out talking differently than they came in. It's a foreign language to them that they begin to acquire. Is that what you see happening? 
Very much so. And of course, not everyone. I, it would be it would be wrong for me to say that everyone who goes to our events is transformed or everyone who does business with mm-hmm. our, us is transformed. But a lot of them are because suddenly they see the world in a way they didn't see it before. They see some options that weren't possible before. One of my, my good friends who I've done a little bit of work for at the Danish Center for Leadership said, uh, when working with Klaus, it seems that anything is possible, but you have to you have to kind of you have to handle with care and brace for impact. And I love those words because they both say that I'm a little bit of a weird guy to work with, but also that there's a chance that things might actually move. Now, as you say, not everybody's interested in that. The worst thing you can do is hire a consultant and actually listen to them because <laughs> they might just tell you something you don't want to know. Oh, you and I have had the same experiences, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I've learned over 20 years doing this, and even the 20 years before that, when I was inside organizations helping them change, that, and you must have heard this a long time ago, an idea is not a good one until someone else thinks it. And so I've learned how to overcome the emotional resistance and the habits by getting them as an anthropologist to see things. And we decide with the eyes and the heart. So if you can feel it and you can see it, then you can think about it. But until then, it's an anomaly. It's weird. We don't know what you're talking about. And that's the, the challenge of our story-driven minds, that we see a reality and now we have to change it, but I don't know what I'm changing it to. I work with a company in uh, Mexico, and they couldn't hire anyone because they were so siloed and so top-down organized that young people didn't want to work there. And when I talked to the young people, they said, who wants to work in these silos with these command and control guys? And the guys said, who wants young people who don't want to? And it was the most difficult thing because I couldn't hire anybody. I said, so let's think through how we're going to solve this problem. (laughs) Who's going to change? Oh, I got to change. And so slowly, if the young ones could mentor the older ones, and the older ones could become friends with the younger ones. They began to trust. And next thing you know, uh, they began to find a common basis for becoming part of the same tribe. And it was very interesting to watch the transformation. But this is interesting. Are there any case studies or illustrations that you can share with us? I think one of the, the ones, this is from a project that I did with uh, IKEA Centers, their global shopping center division. A couple of years back, IKEA is mainly known for its furniture and it's kind of the big blue boxes where you kind of the the buildings where you go in and buy furniture. But they also own quite a lot of shopping centers and they're not necessarily branded IKEA, but there's an IKEA store in each of them. So we were doing a thing, helping them roll out their their big global strategy, which is essentially turning uh, retail into meeting places because that's what the future demands. They're still doing retail, but they're looking to the future. Very, very cool to work with. And we did an experiment in one of these shopping centers where we took a 6,000 square feet space and turned it into an experience space. So instead of a retail space, it was a place where you'd go in and have, we called it the extraordinary center and, and experience art and play and kind of have a very different experience. And when we'd done that and we'd had paying customers and we had surveys that showed this was lovely and interviews, there was a guy who said, I'd rather stay in here than go outside and shop. We had all sorts of nice findings and documentation. And still, there's someone, a shopping center manager, I think from Russia or something like that, who said, nobody will pay for it. Nobody will do it. It's not possible. And one of the Swedish people said, yeah, but this would be shut down the moment it started because of of safety hazards. And then we drag out their own head electrician who's uh, vetted the whole thing and has said yes and put the proper stamps on it. And even after she's heard that she was wrong, factually wrong, she still insists 
that it couldn't be done. And the Russian woman, I had to have a talk with her later. And I said, so we had 1,500 people through here in a couple of days, and they both paid. And here's the scores that say they loved it. And your response is, nobody would pay for this. Can you see how wrong you are? And she grudgingly, and to her credit, said, okay, I, I, I get your point. But I think that there's so many people out there who, even when confronted with measurable, defined reality that proves they're wrong, forget about arguments. This is like actual in-your-face reality proving that you're wrong in, mo in modes you trust. They'll still resist it. Mm -hmm. So, yes, I, I think I can say safely that I've uh, what you talk about, it resonates. It resonates a lot. Well, you know, but your case study is illustrative. My first book, On the Brink of Fresh Lens to Take Your Business to New Heights, from which this podcast emerged, I have seven case studies of companies stalled or stuck. And the opportunities were all in front of them. They just couldn't see them. To your woman's point, even when they were right there, and it was, it was, it was facts, it was people asking for it, their minds were so resistant to the possibilities that they just simply deleted them literally deleting them, emails asking for it, deleting them. And as I wrote the book, I kept saying there's a theme here about how we are so resistant to possibilities and the fear of failure or the resistance in our brain. I mean, we put up so many things, but the times they are changing fast and the speed of change. So I often would say, if you want to change, have a crisis or create one. Never expected COVID, right? So here, <laughs> my whole entire year is being planned remote, and I'm working with all my clients on how do you do hybrid, what, what's, what's changing. So how has COVID and the, and the pandemic been impactful to you and your, your wonderful university of extreme ideas? <laughs> well, first off, we've had, to, uh, we've had to postpone the event because it's a physical five-day event, and it's not possible to do digitally. There are some things I do and that we do that can be done digitally. Most of my work with McKinsey is done digitally these days, to give an example, and a lot of my client work is digital these days. But the college, we, we, we could do something else, but we couldn't do the same. And I think that, at its core, is one of the things that a lot of people are... I'm not going to say failing at, but at least missing out on that instead of saying, okay, here's a new reality. What can we do that fits that reality? They say, okay, here's a new reality. How can we make it seem as much as the old one as possible? Yeah, that's And I think that's, that's a mistake. And it, it, one of the things that I, I sometimes give keynotes to industries, aviation industry, hospitality industry, what have you, about how to deal with crisis, how to, how to, where to look for change. And one of the things I say is, you shouldn't look to the number pushers. The number guys got you here. They were great when yesterday looked like tomorrow. But now you should look to the science fiction writers. You should look to the playwrights. You should look to the artists. You should look to the people who can imagine beyond the numbers because the numbers don't work. Numbers were great a couple of years ago because the world was stable and expanding and, and kind of uh, understandable. But now the numbers don't work. And if you think the people who are good at numbers will bring you past them, well, then you're more naive than I am. And I'm pretty naive. Now, a word from our sponsors, Simon Associates Management Consultants. Simon Associates is us, and we love to help you see, feel, and think in new ways to help you and your business grow. We specialize in applying the tools and methods of anthropology, but we're also entrepreneurs and business builders, and we like to share our experience and expertise with you. So if you're stalled or stuck or starting up, give us a buzz and let's see if we can help you as well. You can learn all about us at simonassociates.net and read my book, learn about it at andysimon.com. There's a free chapter you can download. 
and a toolkit you'll find very helpful. We're on Amazon, and you can buy it as a book, an ebook, or even an audible that I recorded myself. We look forward to hearing from you at simonassociates.net. Info at simonassociates.net is right to us. Now back to our podcast. Well, but you know, the other piece to that is even without the pandemic and the transformation, whether it's the fourth industrial revolution with AI and bots and 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 the blockchain. I mean, I had a bunch of dots and a lot of podcasts about changes. I love change. And I, the resistance was extraordinary for the, the, the beef cattle coming out of Wyoming to have blockchain chips on it. So, you know, it was grass fed. Uh, every diamond, diamond have a blockchain chip on it. Eggs have chips on it. People were shocked. Walmart's putting them on. But the changes are coming. Now, the question is, um, if you want to change, have a crisis or create one, but how do you create something completely new? Um, I had one client who was thrilled. He finally could do something he's been trying to do for two years, and nobody argued with him anymore. <laughs> they figured, oh, well, but you said something very profound, and how do we create a new reality? Um, because people are wondering when we'll go back to the new normal. And there was a little thing in Bloomberg uh, today I was just looking at. Is it the first quarter, the second quarter, the third quarter ever? What is new normal? And why do we give up the stuff that we've learned can work? And what stuff do we not want to work? So humans are very creative creatures. Uh, some of us are, but others are going to want to go back to being in the office and nobody else will be there. It'll be, it's not the same anymore, daddy. I can't go home again. So as you're looking forward as an innovator, what do you see coming that could be a help to the listener to think about you know, that new reality? Because I like that metaphor. I think the best tip that I could give, and, and this is something I do every time I do like innovation coaching or, or some sort of people actually ask me, so Klaus, what do, what do I do? It sounds good, but how does it work? The best tip I can give is we're so focused on big that we forget small. One of the questions I, I often ask when I'm with a client is, what is the smallest change that you can do without asking anybody for permission? Yeah. And sometimes it's, oh, I can spend a million dollars. And sometimes it's, I can move the trash can if I agree, if I agree with Petra, who's at the other desk, and anywhere in between. But people forget that a lot of innovation is small things with big impacts. There's the lovely story, and if you don't know it, Google it, about the, I think it's called the $300 million button, something like that, that there was a change to a web page that changed, I think it was $300 million in yearly revenue because they changed one button or, or changed kind of one, one buying flow. And normally you'd think that to have a big impact, you need to have a big thing. But there's so many things we can do that are small changes that we can control. And then we can test them, find out, do they work? Do they not work? What do we do from there? But the, the thing I tell most people is stop trying to find out how you get buy-in for big change. That's great. But stop doing that right now and start doing small change. Rearrange your office, call a different client, change the typeface, do your presentation in a different way, take a different route to work, do anything different. Find out, is it better? If it's better, then keep doing it and do more of that. Is it worse? Then don't do it again. <laughs> I remember um, a YouTube video I was uh, watching from a Stanford professor who wanted uh, to illustrate how we change at the margins, at the edge. What are the triggers? To your point, you need small wins. And his story, I always laugh about because he wanted to start to work out. And every time he flushed the toilet, he did two push-ups. And the next thing you know, he was doing four push-ups and 10 push-ups two at a time, and he said, I needed the trigger to associate with, to do something differently, because your brain is 
I'm resistant to the changes, but a little at a time makes the brain change. And all of a sudden, what was resistant becomes embracing. And then he found himself celebrating, which is very important. So I'll add to your little change, something little and lots of small wins, but add the celebration because what the brain loves is to get applause. And so when you celebrate, all of a sudden it knows that's what you want me to do. And it does it really well. And so don't, don't try to move this battleship with an oar. Um, it's much easier if you have a little win at a time and then celebrate and more wins and celebrate. Next thing you know, you'll be moving hopefully in a better direction. But it's interesting. You don't have to build a new sandbox. You just need to move toward it. Yes, I know you're smiling. And and you and I think to add to that is that it's I, I love that story, by the way. And I think that a lot of things that stop us are that we can only see the results when the big thing happens. Because, of course, if you do two push-ups a day, well, that's better than zero, but it's not a lot better. But this guy <laughs> kept moving and it's the starting that's hard. And I mean, I've done 30 books or actually that's lying. I've done 31 books because that by was written a little bit of time ago. And there's a, a thing that a friend of mine at some point asked me, he's like, Klaus, how did you write 30 books? At that point, I think it was like 25, but the, the point still stays. And I didn't even remember this until he told the story. And he said, I'd looked him in the eye and I'd looked dead serious. And then I would grinned. And then I'd said one chapter at a time. <laughs> and, and that's exactly, you know, it's interesting. My first book took me four years. And I had to rewrite it three times, I think. And I had a great publisher and I finally got it done. It was really fine. Won an award and all that. The second book took me a year and a half. And I, I got my editor right away and I knew exactly what I wanted. And then I changed the whole thing <laughs> halfway through it. Um, but it was a chapter at a time until the story began to form in the head. And it changed the whole, and it's an interesting process. But people ask me the same question. How did you get to write a book? Page at a time, a thought at a time, you just started. Do you lock yourself away? You can do it any way you like, <laughs> but you got to do it, right? Exactly, exactly. And my last book took three weeks because my illustrator was busy. <laughs> I guess you knew what you wanted to say, huh? I, I guess, and I think part of it's also that it's so easy to look at the world and look at what can I do today and then get scared. Yes. But the reality is, with the amount of information available, with the freedom we have, most of us, not everybody, the privileged of us who uh, who kind of have the, the privilege to live in, I mean, we're on this call, or you're listening to this, you're one of the privileged, end of story. We have the advantage that it's not so much what we know right now, yes. it's what we know in two weeks, or what we can do in two weeks. So somebody comes to you and says, Klaus, can you do a keynote on this? And I say, oh my God, I don't know everything there is to know about that subject. Well, of course I don't, because I have two weeks to prepare. And in two weeks, I can figure out a lot of stuff. Yes. And if you constantly look at that, if you don't look at where you are right now, but you look at where can you be in two weeks or one week or a month or who cares? The important thing is don't get too stuck up on where you are right now. Look at what you can be down the road. And I think having a kid, I have a daughter who's nearly three, is the best way of teaching that. I learned it luckily beforehand, makes it easier to get the kid. But when every parent will know that once you learn how to deal with a two-year-old, then your kid turns two and a half and suddenly it's a new ball game. Then they're three, then they're five, then they're nine, then they're 11. Then they're moving out of the house, then they're getting married. And every time you feel you know what's going on, they change and you can't stop them. And we know that. And nobody comes into being a parent going, oh, my God, how do I have that hard conversation with my teenage son? 
well, he's three months old. Yeah, but what do I do that? We don't do that. We're like, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll get there when I move along. And it's easier with kid number three because you've done it before, but then they're still different. All that sort of stuff we take for granted with children. But when it comes to jobs, there's so many people, so many people who are their own worst enemy because they'll say, oh, there's going to come a thing. I'm starting out a company in my garage. What happens when we reach 100 employees? Well, well, don't worry about that, Greg. Just sell the first product first. Oh, no, I don't know how to handle that growth journey. I'm going to stop it. I'm going to go watch Netflix instead. I was talking to somebody yesterday, and, and that's just what they were afraid of. Um, and, and, and there's a wonderful industry around mistakeology. And I teach in one of my leadership academies um, a session on why you should make mistakes and lots of them and turn them into not mistakes. They just, you know, they're learnings. And the only way we learn is through experience. And so the more experiences you have, the more likely you will have lots of mistakes. And, you know, I don't want to do the Silicon Valley fail off and fail fast, but it's the same idea. Show me what we've learned so we don't make those mistakes, but we'll make other ones. And if you're an innovator, you know very well that having an idea is cheap. It's hard, but it's cheap. But turning it into something someone can actually use Oh man, that's where the I, that the real agility and, and 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 skills come, and that means you need to listen to the others. I loved your IKEA story because yeah, listen to them. They didn't just come and pay. They told you it was great, and if that wonderful woman had listened to them, she would have said, "How fast can we do this?" There's an opportunity coming. So listening becomes part of our skills. Klaus says, we're looking at the time. Can you give three things, two things, one thing that you want our listeners not to forget? They often remember the ending better than the beginning. So I want to give three things. Thing number one is do it. And I know that sounds like a Nike slogan, that sort of thing. But when you look at all these ideas of what will happen and what will not happen, just try it. Try it, and then you'll have some data. And then try it again, and you'll have more data. So do it, do it, do it. And if that scares you, then make it smaller, and then do it. And if that scares you, make it even smaller and do it. But whatever it is, do it. Get used to the mistakes. Get used to doing. Get into the habit of doing. That's number one. Number two is it almost always fails because of the human side. Innovation is, oh, technology and new organizational (laughs) culture, the words of Frédéric Laloux and the holacracy, all this sort of thing. It's beautiful. And at the end of the day, what makes it fail is that somebody forgot to charge their iPhone or somebody forgot the key or somebody hadn't uh, made sure they had their wallet on them or the car was in the wrong place. It's simple, stupid human errors that stop most processes. And when people are starting processes, they always talk about the big stuff. How are we going to expand into China? Nobody says, how are we going to make sure that Frederick actually gets a new watch so he's not always two minutes late because those two minutes are going to cost us at some point. So the human element of innovation, never, ever forget that because that's where most of the bad stuff happens. And number three, the best thing you can do, best thing you can do to get new ideas is to A, get used to executing on them, as you say, but also B, find new places to look. Yes. Whether it's watching your kids' TV shows, My Little Pony, excellent show, by the way, whether it's looking at astrology conferences online or whether it's going to the circus and thinking, how do they handle logistics? Go to places you wouldn't normally go. If you're in a bank and you're looking for a new VP, I wouldn't look at somebody who's been in a bank before. I'd look at somebody who ran a circus. Yes, yes. Or my three. Well, the, but I, I, I'll add one more, and that is trust serendipity. 
You're listening. Yes, yes, yes. And, 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 and you may be listening to him by chance, or you may be a, a frequent, you know, attendee at our podcast and love to hear. Um, but if you listen to him and something triggers something in your head, don't flee it. Don't delete it. Don't fight it. Say, ah, there's something really cool here. And then I love to take people on thought walks. A quiet mind hears and sees things much better than a busy one. So put your cell phone away and then just walk and just let the mind do all kinds of great things as it does as it's thinking. Collaborate with your mind and you will find ideas are sitting there waiting to come out because they're waiting to come out. They just have no place to come. <laughs> and if you let them come, share it with somebody. I have this cool idea. What do you think? And then don't judge it on their thoughts. Just let it add something to your own. Your mind is waiting for you. It's a great opportunity. Klaus, if they want to reach you for consulting or to read your books or listen to you, um, where is the best place? So I'm one of those rare individuals that there's only one Klaus Hostel on the planet, for better and worse. And I have a pretty solid uh, digital footprint. So Google me and you will find me. There's also my website, klauswasta.com. There's my YouTube channel. I'm easily found on LinkedIn. But just a simple Google, and you will find me. And you won't be in doubt. You may regret it, but you won't be in doubt. I promise you on our uh, podcast page, you'll have all of uh, Klaus's information. And on the video at the end, the last card will have all his information as well. And then there's always LinkedIn. And blessed be LinkedIn as a, the directory of choice when, when in doubt, where do we find people? Good. It's been terrific for you. Those of you who come all the time or occasionally, thank you so much. Your emails are terrific. Send them to info at andysimon.com. Uh, and remember my new book, Rethink, Smashing the Myths of Women in Business, is right out there ready for you. And it is a really exciting time to launch a new book about Rethink. I didn't know that the title would be so timely. Uh, but in fact, we are all rethinking what men and women can do, the conversations we're having, and how we can help you do that as well. So, Klaus, what a pleasure today. Thank you so much. I'm going to say goodbye. Thank you. <laughs> Did you have a good time? I hope so. I had an excellent time. <laughs> Goodbye, all. Have a great day. Stay safe. Stay happy. Bye-bye now.